Thanks for joining us today at Springwell Church, where we want to draw spiritually thirsty people to Jesus by loving God, loving each other, and loving the world. We hope that today's message builds you up, gives you a little insight, and helps you find a brand new perspective. You can find us in Taylor, South Carolina, and online at springwell.org. That's springwell.org. Now let's jump into the message. Good morning. Hey, y'all. I'm wonderful. Thank you for asking. Uh, Brian did a phenomenal job last week, did he not? Give him, Brian said, woo-hoo. See, y'all quit too soon. Let's try it one more time. It was awesome. It was awesome. I was here. Uh, so he kicked off this brand new series called One Another. And in case you missed it, it's a series that's all about relationships. It's, it's how to do one with another. And today we're going to talk about how to do one another with your spouse. Man, I don't know how to take that at all. We're your spouse. So all the single people said, boo, I showed up on the wrong day, right? Here, listen, I promise, if you'll just listen, the things that we're going to talk about today are going to be principles that you can use in any relationship. If it's, if it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend, if it's a fiancé, if it's a neighbor, if it's somebody that you work with, if it's a best friend, the kinds of things that we're going to talk about today will help you to do life better with the people that you love and you want to connect with, but maybe necessarily don't know how. So I read this in a commentary, so I know it's right. It says this, the Bible starts off with a wedding and then moves to a war. That was a nervous kind of laugh right there, wasn't it? And so, you know, I read that and I thought, man, it's a great, it's a great sentence, but then where's the wedding? Did that anybody, that even cross your mind? So I thought, I don't remember like God standing in front of Adam and Eve and saying, will you take this man? Will you take this woman? Guess what? It's not there. But here's what we know. If you'll look at Genesis 2, if you'll look at Genesis 3, that every time that Adam or Eve are referred to, it's referred to as a husband and a wife. So what we do know is that they're married. And we know that what starts off as, uh, as a honeymoon certainly moves to a war. What started out as... Uh, started out as ideal, turned into an ordeal, and some of y'all looking for a new deal. That would probably be more funny if it wasn't more true than not, right? Yeah. The story of Genesis is that our first parents are married, and then immediately the old devil shows up, and he moves this, this war from, from heaven to earth, from assaulting God and the angels in heaven to assaulting a husband and a wife. Listen, this is what you need to know. Please hear me. God hates, Satan hates God's people. He hates us. We make him sick. Satan wants to do everything he can. We nauseate him. He wants to do everything that he can to take us out. And and he hates, in particular, Satan hates a Christian marriage. But do you know why? Because when we do it right, listen, when we do it right, there's no better picture of who God is. 
when we love each other well, when we treat each other well, when we encourage each other well, when we lift each other up well, when we do it well, when we love each other well, there's no better picture to a world of who God is than when a husband and a wife come together. For example, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image. He created in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So my heavenly father is the perfect balance of masculinity and femininity. Hello. Are y'all with me? It's kind of hard to wrap your brain around, really, isn't it? Because we really haven't been geared to think that way. He's my heavenly father. He is your heavenly father, but he's also the beautiful balance of masculinity and femininity all rolled up in one. I love the movie The Shack. There, I said it. I said it in public. I'm proud of it. Okay, so like if you're new to church or if you've never seen the movie The Shack, you're probably wondering what the big deal is. Well, when the movie came out a few years ago, and I wouldn't say anything about the movie. I never did in, in those beginning years. I was trying to figure it all out. And so it was a little controversial among some Christians because when it first came out, one of the reasons was that in the beginning of the movie, God is portrayed as a big black woman. Y'all with me? Some of y'all are a little making, oh, I don't know if I feel, in, I don't know if I feel comfortable with that. Or not either. He was portrayed as a big black woman. And there was more than one pastor who stood up on the pulpit, maybe the next Sunday or the following Sunday. Wherever that movie came out, they were all standing in their pulpits and were all saying, that's heresy. God's not my heavenly mother. He's my heavenly father. And all God's people said. See, y'all don't know what to say. I know, I got you. Here's the thing. Later in the movie, and I'm not going to tell you about the movie, I really would rather you see it. But later in the movie, God comes to Mac as a man. So Mac basically asked him, he said, why, why a man today? And God says, because today you needed a father. And when I saw that movie, I went, oh my gosh. All of the arguing, all of the fussing has been wrong. Genesis 2, God is the perfect balance of, of masculinity and, and femininity. He has the beautiful characteristics and attributes of, of masculinity and femininity. And so when you look at God, when you look at God, are there attributes that would make you think of, of a woman, of, of a loving, nurturing, kind, tender woman? Absolutely. Are there other characteristics that make you think of a man? Absolutely. It's God. And so listen to me. When we come together, when we as Christians, if we could ever get it right, when we come together as, as a man and a woman, as a husband and a wife, if we could just come together and get it right, the world would have the perfect picture of, oh my gosh. That's God. That's what he looks like. It's important that we get it right. Then there's another interesting analogy of, of husbands and wives in the New Testament. In Ephesians 5, husbands, it says that husbands, Paul says that husbands should, should love their wives. As what? I can't hear you. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? That husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And so he's saying that when a husband and a wife are loving each other well, it's a picture of the relationship that Jesus has with the church. 
And as Jesus leads the church lovingly and humbly and sacrificially, so we as men, we as husbands are to lead our wives and lead our families. That's the example. And as wives respect their husbands, they're showing something of the respect that the church has, or at least that we should have, for Jesus as the head of the church. Are you with me? See, we don't talk about this enough. And so the, the world, our culture, is trying to, to take everything away from the family, especially the Christian family, and they're trying to change the role. We, now you know why. It's because when we do it right, folks, when we do it right, we give, feature, we give people the perfect balance of, of, of who God is. It's masculinity and femininity rolled up into one, and that's a picture of God. And when we get it right, when we show the love and the mercy and the kindness and the goodness of God, then we portray to a world that needs to understand a God of mercy and of love and of kindness and of tenderness. We've got to get it right. It's a, it's a big deal. So if Satan attacks marriages, he attacks us. Because he knows that if he can attack us, and then he can affect future generations. He can have our kids. He can have our children, and he can have our grandchildren. If he can just destroy the family. Family is a big deal. Some of you can testify to that very fact because you have some deep personal pain that comes from a family battle. Maybe it was your parents or your grandparents. They lost a battle. Because of that great loss, you didn't have a great example of how to do life with a spouse and so you don't know. You don't know how to be a godly wife or a godly husband. And here's the thing. Here's the thing, we, we talk church so much, it drives me nuts. We talk a language, but we don't even understand the benefit. We don't know the benefit that, that Jesus can make, because what you'll understand as a husband is the very thing that God has called you to is the very thing that you'll struggle with. It'll be the very thing that will cause you to, it will cause you to, to, to trip over your own two feet sometimes, trying to get it right. Women, listen, as you're trying to, to respect, it'll be the, one of the most difficult things that you could possibly do. And what you know is that outside the context of a, of a relationship with Jesus, it's just impossible. So how do we do it well? How do we do it well? It's a great question. Come back in a couple of weeks and John will tell you the answer. <laughs> Just wanted to set you up. This morning, I want us to look at an odd passage. I'm an odd guy, so I want us to look at an odd passage. Now, I say it's an odd passage. Here's the reason why. It's because it doesn't mention marriage. Marriage is not mentioned anywhere in this, in this text. Neither is a husband mentioned or a wife mentioned. But within this text, I think, are some beautiful principles that if we'll just, if we'll just lean into them, if we'll just learn from them, then we will learn how to do life better. And so maybe if you're a husband and a wife and you're struggling in your marriage, I promise you, if you'll just hang on and listen, you'll figure out how to do it better, how to do it well, how to save your marriage. If you're just struggling with a, with a relationship with a neighbor, with a co-worker, then hang on because there's still going to be principles that will apply to you in that relationship as well. So it's a weird passage. It's John chapter 9. And it goes like this. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man. I underlined that in my notes. He saw a man. There's more power there than you think. 
He saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples, asked him, why was this man born blind? So tell me, Jesus, was it, was it the sin of his parents? Was it his own sin? Whose sin caused him to be blind? Jesus said, well, it's not because of his sins or his parents' sins. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the task assigned to us by the one who sent us. He said, the night is coming. And when the night comes, then, then no one can work. But while I'm here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. And if you're brand new to church, it's okay to go, ooh. I know we're in church, it's holy spit, but it's spit. They didn't know that it was holy spit. Are you with me? So can you imagine if you came down and I said, you're blind. <laughs> Make a little mud, put it on your eyes. You'd probably freak out just a tad. It's okay. It's, it's okay if you think that. God's not out to get you. Then he said, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. I reckon so. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the guy? Isn't this the guy? I mean, is this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was. Others said, no, I don't think this is the guy at all. It looks like him. And then I love this, but the blind beggar said, I'm the guy. I'm the same guy. I've been sitting here literally for years. You've seen me every day for years sitting in the same spot. Begging, just like I always beg. I'm the guy. He said, well, who healed you? What happened? He told them. The man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and I washed. Now I can see. Wow, it's a phenomenal story. So how many of you love miracle stories? You love miracle stories? How many of you would love to say, I'd like to have a miracle. Can I, I like it. I'd like to get my own miracle. I mean, are you selling miracles today? Because I would love to buy one. I would love to experience a miracle. Most of us would. And most of the time when we go to this story, that's about all we see. It's the miracle of Jesus, the compassion, the heart of Jesus that performed a miracle for a blind man and made him see. But there's more there. I believe there's more there than, than just a miracle. It's deeper. It's a story of how three different people, three different people looked at the same man and saw three different things. Let me read the first verse to you again. As Jesus was walking along, he saw, he saw a man. Let that sink in just a second. He saw a man. Never underestimate the power of being noticed. It's a big deal to me. It's a big deal to me as a pastor. If you're here for the very first time, it's a big deal. It's a big deal to me that we have people in the parking lot that when you pull on to this property, is that you're noticed. Is that we want to help you to navigate as best we can to find a parking space. But it's more than that. It's to say that, we're, that we noticed you, that we're glad you're here. There are people that are out there on the patio. You know what? It's a big deal to me. I want, I want you to know that, that we notice that you're here, we, that we care, that it matters whether or not you show up. And when you walk on the inside, it's the same thing. I just want to make sure that there are people here that we notice you, that we ask you how you're doing. Can we help you find a seat? Can we get you a cup of coffee? Can we get you a donut? I mean, you know what I'm saying? I just want you to know that you're being noticed, the power of being noticed. The disciples looked at the same man. 
They didn't see a man. You know what they saw? They saw a theology lesson. You see the verse? Jesus. So Jesus, tell us. Was it this man's sin or the sins of his parents that caused him to be blind? See, back in the day, religious folks would, would look at someone that had a handicap and they would say, the reason that you have a handicap is either because of your sin or indirectly it's because of the sins of your parents. And so what they were looking for, they were looking for a theology lesson. They weren't looking at the man at all. They didn't see the man. They saw a lesson. Their observation was cold, which is exactly what religion does doesn't it? It leaves you cold. And then there was a third group of people, and that was the man's neighbors. His neighbors and others who knew him as the blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man, is this the same guy? Like, is this the guy that you, you know, like for years has been in the same place? I mean, like he hadn't moved to muscle, same place, every time, every day, all day, is this the same guy? Some said he was, some says, you know what, I, I don't even think this is the same guy. I think somebody just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, I'm the guy. The same thing is here, they never saw anybody at all. They looked past the man. The text doesn't tell us how old he is. It says that he was a man. It's a, the Greek can be a beautiful language, and, and really it just means that he was an adult. That's what it means, and so... He could have been maybe in his teens. He could have been maybe somewhere in his 20s. We don't know. But here's my point, that for years and years and years, they passed by the same guy sitting in the same place literally for years. And they never saw him. And this was back before trains, planes, and two men in a truck. I remember, I remember what it was like my first year to dig into a third world country and I remember thinking I'm going to go back I met this little girl named Julie and I remember we was on the plane going back the second year and I thought I wonder if I'll see Julie I wonder if I'll see Julie and I got there and I saw Julie and I was thrilled and, cause, and she and I kind of built a relationship so every year I'd go back and, and I would look to see her and I remember about that second or third year I remember thinking third year I remember thinking I wonder if I'll see Julie and then I thought well you idiot like where do you think she's going it's a third world country it's not like she has a car it's not like she's going to move to another neighborhood she can't move to another neighborhood. It's all she's got. The only thing I've ever seen Julie ride is a bicycle, and it wasn't nice. Where is this guy going to go? He's a blind beggar. They had known him his whole life, and yet no one had ever paid any attention to him. Is there anything any more humiliating than to be invisible to the people around you? You know what I'm talking about. You've been there. It, it, it does. I'm so sensitive to that. When people walk through the doors of the church, that we love you well. It's a big deal to me. I want you to know that you matter. That we're glad that you're here. I stink at names, and so we hire other people to learn your name. And I ask. I really do. I wish I could tell you I'm joking. I'd say, what's his name? What's his name? Oh, Bill. Hey, Bill. <laughs> it's important. I don't want you to be invisible. 
Of all the people that encountered this blind man, Jesus is the only one who actually saw him. He's the only one that paid attention to this man, which is an interesting phrase, isn't it? Paid attention. It's interesting. We don't say, you make attention. I bought some attention. We say, you paid attention. People's attention is so valuable that we attach a cost to it. We pay attention. Okay, so how do we apply this to marriage, right? How do we apply this to marriage? Well, the first thing that you need to do, if you're really going to build a strong relationship, I'm talking about deep community with your spouse. You've got to pay attention to each other. The story's told that when Franklin D. Roosevelt was president, I love this guy because he got really tired of smiling and saying the usual things at every White House reception. So he decided that one evening he was going to blow everybody's mind. And so he said, you know what, instead of just giving him that usual smile, shake his hand, you know, hope you're doing well kind of thing, he said, you know what, I'm just going to see if anybody's really paying attention to me. And so at the reception that night, as each person would come by, he would extend his hand, he would flash that big smile that he had, and he would say this, he would say, good evening. I murdered my grandmother this morning. And people, you know, people just responded in the most unusual way. They weren't paying any attention to what he said at all. And, and so some would say, how nice. Others would say, good work, Mr. President. One foreign diplomat, one foreign diplomat picked up on it. And so when he reached out and said, you know, good evening, I, I mur murdered my grandmother this morning, the foreign diplomat said, well, sir, I'm sure she had it coming to her. Pay attention. Karen and I notice this a lot. <laughs> when we go out to eat, which is not very often, we're cheap, we're tight. But anyway, when we go out to eat, it's interesting because what we notice is the, are the people around us. And, and one of the things that we notice is that you don't see couples talking to each other. It's, it's like it's a lost art. Everybody has their phone. Literally, everybody at the table I just got a text. That's awesome. Thank you, Elaine. <laughs> Put that back up. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. Gotcha, didn't I? So you don't pay attention to one another anymore. Karen and I have literally said, said I, wonder if they, I wonder if they even know how to communicate to each other. Have they been doing the phone thing for so long? Have they been so involved in their phone, that they've been so head first in their phone for so long that they really don't understand what it would be like to lift their eyes up and to engage the person sitting across from them in a conversation. And you know what? It's, it's not just what you do at a restaurant. It's what you do at home. And you can sit on the couch and, and the TV's on and one's on their laptop and the other's on a tablet. Or as you go to bed at night and, and the last thing that you do, rather than to look at the person that you've pledged to do your life with, rather than to kiss them and say, I love you and, and, and whatever else you want to do, I'm just saying, you got a license, it's legal. Karen's next door in the children's, I'm safe right now. It's you're on your tablet. Paying attention. 
Jesus said we must quickly carry out the task assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night's coming. The night's coming. And then no one can work. I think that Jesus was saying that we have an extraordinary opportunity in front of us. But the time is limited. The opportunity is limited. One of the things that I've noticed over the years as I've dealt with people who are grieving is, is the regrets that they have or the things that they didn't say. It's, man, you know what, if I had it to go back and do over again, I would, have, I would have had lunch with every week, at least one time a week, I would have made sure that I had lunch with. I would have made sure that at least once a month there was that phone conversation. If I had known, if I had had any idea, I would have made, I would have made more valuable use of my time. And then the time's gone. So let me share with you a couple of ways that Karen and I pay attention to each other. The first one, are you ready? This is deep. This is deep. Those of you that really like deep, this is super deep. I'm just saying. You ready? Here I go. We actually talk to each other. That's deep. We, we actually talk to each other. It's been said that, I don't know who does the counting, but it's been said that men speak somewhere in the neighborhood of 25,000 words a day. It's been said that women speak somewhere in the neighborhood of 50,000 words a day. We've already got a problem, right? You know it. At the end of the day, ask your husband, how was your day? What does he say? Fine. Y'all all married the same guy. Ask a woman at the end of the day, how was your day? Well, let me tell you, I meant to get up at, I meant to get up at 7, but I overslept. I didn't get up to 7.10. And I went to get that dress. Remember that red dress we got that day we went to the mall? Remember, we went, we went to, I don't even know what stores are in the mall. I can't even go any further with this illustration. But y'all, are y'all with me? And the guy's going, ah! I was just kind of generally looking for how was your day. Women, God's given you this beautiful, wonderful gift. And, and so you, you're, you're intuitive. And your brain is, God has just wired you so much that every you walk into a room, your mind is just scanning the room and you're picking up things that we as men would never see. All those things, though, cause a lot of trouble when it comes to communication. Women are detail-oriented. Men are more big-picture thinkers, which typically means that women are better communicators than men. But that's not always true. And In my marriage, my wife, if she were here, would tell you, I'm the better communicator. She struggles with communication. So we've had to work on it all these years. So how do you, how do you get better at communication? How, because most of you probably are struggling in the area of communication. So how do you get better at communication? Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to learn to ask great, great questions. If I ask you, what, what thing do you remember about Jesus the most? My guess is probably you would think of Jesus as the great teacher, right? So Jesus would teach, and when he would teach, thousands of people would gather to listen to him teach. And when he could teach, oh, my gosh, he knew how to tell a story. I mean, he knew how to tell a story where everybody's leaning in, hinging on every word that he said. But more than Jesus just being a great teacher, Jesus was a great listener. He was a great listener. He knew how to ask great questions. For example, in John chapter 1, verse 37, when John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following and said, I just think this is a hoot. What do y'all want? It's Jesus. 
They didn't know that, but if they had, they would say, well, you're God, you tell us. I don't know what I want. I'm just, I'm just hanging, I'm just following you. I'm not even sure. So why would Jesus ask a question if he's God and he already knows the answer? It's not because Jesus needs new information. He wants to engage. He wants to engage. Not too long after that, Jesus was walking through the region of Samaria. And when he came to a well, there was a woman that was getting water. Samaritan woman wouldn't have had contact with any man, but not a Jewish man. These were two people groups that literally hated one another, despised one another. And so she meets Jesus at the well, and Jesus asks her a question. It's a simple question. It's not a hard question. He says, will you give me a drink? Whoa, wait a minute. He's not even supposed to be at the well. Certainly not supposed to be talking to a Samaritan woman. And yet Jesus shows up and he asks a question. And read John 4. Go home this afternoon. And you know what happens? Out of that one simple question, there's this beautiful conversation that takes place. Jesus could have got his own water. He could have just said, water. And it would have appeared in his hand. He could have said, a cup of water. There would have been a cup of water. He knew how to ask questions. A chapter later, Jesus is walking by a pool of water in Jerusalem, and he, he came to a crippled man. This is maybe one of the silliest questions I've seen in Scripture. He looks at a crippled man, and he says, Do you want to get well? I'm sure the man was tempted to say, No, I just like the pool. Here's your sign. Why would Jesus ask a question? I'll tell you why. Because he wanted to engage with the person. He wanted to develop a conversation with the person. Why? Because he loves people. And he wanted to engage for someone to feel special, like they mattered. I want to know what's going on in your life. You tell me. Jesus asked great questions. So think through some of the conversations that you've had in your life, some of the best conversations you've had in your life. And those conversations, you know what I'm talking about when you really feel like you just connected with that person? Think it through, really. So you feel like you connected with the person, you were known by the person that you were talking to. My, my guess is, is that if things went really deep, if the conversation went well, then probably what happened was it was a person who asked great questions. They made you feel like you mattered. Like in that moment, you're the only one that matters. My wife is a master at asking questions. She really is. Emily's on the front row. She can testify to that. I used to love it back in the old days when you used to visit people's homes. I loved it when I took Karen with me because we'd walk in and sit down. In just a few minutes, my wife would do what she does best. She would start asking questions. And you could see literally the expression of people's face. They, it changes. Oh, Wow. Asking about your family, where do you work, all these things. And then she would pick up on any little thing that you would say. And I would watch these people lean in as Karen talked. Because people felt like that they were being engaged with, like that they mattered. The power of asking questions. The power of communication. Actually, Karen and I ask each other the same question. We've been doing it, Emily, for how many years? Ever since she's been in the world, at least. But at the end of every day, when my wife walks to the door, I always ask her the same question. How was your day? 
Sometimes, sometimes, we always smile. There's always a grin on her face. Sometimes I'll say, did you make any new friends today? She'll usually smile and say, ah, I'm not sure. I said, did you lose any old ones? Sometimes she'll say, well, I'm not sure. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we ask each other meaningful, that one meaningful question, and then we pause, and then we, and then we, then we lean in, and we listen. How was your day? I really do care. Whatever happened to you today, I want to know about it. I, I want to be a part of your life. I want to be able to know how to pray for you. I want to know what's going on in your life. Karen will tell me things sometimes during the week. I got this meeting this week. It's going to be tough. Great, I'll be praying for you. So when she comes in, you know, in the afternoon, I can say, how was your meeting? How did it go? What was it like? It's a simple question. It's not hard. How was your day? Of course, asking questions is great, but it really doesn't do any good if you don't care enough to listen to the response. So James 1 says this, verse 19, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And see, listening is the ability to go beyond just, just hearing words. You, you, you know that, right? It, it's, it's the ability to say, you know what, you said everything was okay. You said fine. Y'all know what fine means. When somebody says, I'm doing fine, it means I'm frantic, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. That's what fine actually means. Think about that. It'll be good. Write it down. When you go home, it'll be cool. Lean into what people say. Listen to what they say. Look at an expression on a face. They said fine, but everything on the outside said, I'm not doing good. And you know what they're looking for? They're looking for somebody that cares enough to see that look. second thing that you need to do if you're going to do one another really, really well. This is my favorite one. Communicate love through touch. Any man out there? Well, that's not the kind of touch I'm talking about. I just wanted to see if you were listening. <laughs> see if you were listening. There's so much power in touch. Non-sexual touch. Sexual touch is good. This must be the wrong crowd. God created sex between a husband and a wife. Come on, a hallelujah something. As I was studying, I read... Uh, I read about this work that was done many, many years ago. It's a classic work called People Making. And it was written by a lady by the name of Virginia Satir. And uh, she's a psychologist. And here's what she said. She said that it takes eight meaningful touches a day to maintain mental health. Eight. Twelve. Twelve touches a day to grow. Sometimes the best way to communicate love is to put your hand on somebody's shoulder or touch their elbow or to rub their back. And you know what breaks my heart in the culture that we live in? I've moved away from that, if I'm honest with you. I don't like it. I remember the first time a few years ago when I, I was just a big hugger. I hugged everybody, you know. Men, women, didn't matter. I just, that's just the way I was raised. And so I was a big hugger, and I hugged everybody. And then all of a sudden, I heard that there were inappropriate hugs. I went, what? Yeah, it's an inappropriate hug. That's an inappropriate touch. 
how do you know? Because it's the way that he looked at me before he touched me. And, and I got, man, I started getting paranoid. paranoid. I'm going, man, I'm afraid to touch anybody anymore. And that's a shame, isn't it? The power of the touch. I think that Jesus probably gives us the best illustration of the power of, of touch in Mark chapter 1 when he meets a man with leprosy. It says this in verse 40, A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you're willing, you can make me clean. This is powerful. It's a lot more powerful than you think. He reached out his hand and he touched the man. Back in the day, if you were diagnosed with leprosy, it meant that you'd had, that was it, no more physical touch from anybody. In fact, they wouldn't just let you stay in the same home. They would take you outside of the city and there would be a place for other lepers that would hang out together. And you couldn't touch because it was a highly contagious disease. And literally your, your limbs would, would grow numb and they would literally fall off. And so it was, it was a horrible thing. And nobody wanted that disease. And so from this man, ever since he had contracted this particular disease, no one had touched him. Not a family member, not a mama, not a daddy. Everybody would have saw him as an outcast. In fact, when they saw him coming, they would have, they would have cried out, unclean. And they wouldn't have touched him. Jesus could have spoke to that man and said, you're healed. Like he did with the man that was on the bed. Remember the lame guy? He said, take up your bed and walk. Jesus didn't have to reach out and touch him. Why do you think he did? It was because that day for that man, the power of touch was as powerful as the healing itself. There was healing just in the touch. I've actually been told by others that Karen and I touch a lot. That's a good thing. We hold hands when we're riding down the road in the car. We don't think about it. We just do. We touch a lot at church. We hold hands. We, we hold hands a lot at church. Over the years, it's been, it's been weird, but that's kind of freaked people out. I've looked at them and said, I got a license marriage license I've got a license we kiss we kiss a lot we kiss at church and there have been literally there have been people over the years not many <laughs> word got out I guess what I would say people would come to me and say you're kissing your wife it's a public display of affection you're doing that in public go, yeah of course I do you know what I think is wrong with the world? Is they don't have any idea how to love. They don't know what real love looks like. They don't know what genuine love looks like. So we as Christians have kind of tried to hide behind some kind of false something or another. Like God didn't create sex and it's not good. It's good in its proper context. But we, don't know, we haven't communicated that. So the world has this really twisted view. And I think what we should do is teach people how to do it. Not long ago, it was really cool for me personally. Karen and I, you know, we hang out here on the first row most of the time. And, and so during worship, I guess we were holding hands or doing something. And, and actually somebody in the service told me that week, he, he said, man, I, that's what I long for. I long, I long for what you've got with your wife. I said, really? I said, cool. He said, yeah. He said, I punched my daughter on Sunday and said, look at them. They're holding hands. They're, they're worshiping God. They're doing it together. Never underestimate power of touch for those of you that know Jesus as your Savior and you know these principles then you know that there's a lot more to it than knowledge right guys as you've read through Ephesians if you have it all 
Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved the church. And if you've ever read that passage, then he describes the kind of love that's impossible for you to do alone. That's why you, you need to humble yourself and you need to come to Jesus and say, God, I can't, I can't do this on my own. You're going to have to help me. I'm going to be selfish. Our tendency as men is to be selfish and think about ourselves. Hello? All the women said. So we have to die to ourselves and we have to learn how to gently and humbly lead and love our wives. I can't do that on my own. Ladies, guess what? One of the things you're going to struggle with more than anything is, is giving respect to your husband. You're just going to struggle with it. God didn't wire you. He called you to do something, but he didn't wire you with the ability to do it. So you know why? It's because there's a, there's a void. And so the only way that we can fill that void is to lean into him and to ask him to help us. It's the only way that we can do it. You can't do it on your own. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I just wonder right now, you just gut level on. You say, man, I'll tell you, man, we suck at communication. I want to get better at it. I want to ask better questions. I want to learn to listen. God, I can't do it on my own. I've tried. You're going to have to help me. Maybe you've gone to marriage counseling, you know. They give you all the principles. The thing that you lack is the power to do it. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I just wonder if you'd just be honest enough right now to just bow your head. Maybe, God, if your spouse is right there, you just maybe grab their hand and say, God, we've got to pray. Let's humble ourselves right now. doesn't matter. We're in a safe place. Maybe you're here this morning you're not a follower of Jesus. And you just, maybe you just went, wow, I just had no, like, God, I didn't know God was like, all about relationships. I didn't, I didn't know that Jesus taught so much, like practical living stuff, you know, like how to communicate, the power of touch. I didn't realize. You know what? I could follow a Jesus like that. I would be willing to surrender my life to a Jesus like that. Maybe here this morning you're not a follower of Jesus, but you'd like to be. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. No one's looking around. Maybe you'd pray a prayer or something like this. Maybe you'd say, Father, all I know is that I'm lost without you. I know I'm a sinner. I know I struggle with sin. And I know I struggle with relationships. And I need you. I need you. So I just want to ask you to forgive me of my sin. I'm just confessing. And I'm telling you that I know that you're real. I know you're alive. Jesus, you were God's son. I know you went to the cross, and on the cross you shed your blood to pay the penalty for my sin. I get that. And I believe you're alive. It's, it's an over-the-top kind of story, but I believe. And I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin, and I just want you to be my Savior.